Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm here with Louise Patmore and Sandra Dudich. So, Sandra, starting with you, um, I was really struck by your story, your cancer clinician who kind of gave you permission to ask questions. Why was that such a powerful moment for you? It was powerful because I guess we're trained in, in our communications to be the listener to the person providing your treatment option and you sort of run with it and trust that that's what you do. You don't really ask questions because you're not encouraged to ask questions. So the fact that he opened that door and said, ask me any question was very empowering. And honestly, if I didn't have that with me, I think it would have been harder to go through the journey because that enabled me to really feel I was part of that healthcare team, that I was the most important person on the team because they didn't know what I didn't know. And by allowing me to ask questions, that conversation could, could happen where I benefited and they knew how to help. Does that chime with your experience? It does, yeah. I think it's really, really important to have those people that are going to say you carry on. And, it, and, and there's one of those things is around permission that I, I've um, really um, been able to hold on to. And sometimes you can lose sight of that, especially when you start getting into a big organisation where you'd have quite powerful people saying, well, I don't think you could do that. And it's known you've got that back up. It's known that you can go back to your mentors. You can go back to those people that are giving you that support. Um, and, and that permission um, was given to me quite early on. Um, and what came out of that about empowering other people and me being able to give permission to other people and other people and that cascading down, which is how the sort of leader-leader project works, um, just really enable people to, to move on and, and do things creatively. Um, I guess I'm quite good at arguing and making a point and sticking with, with the point. Um, in the beginning, I was quite angry and I, I did used to leave meetings um, over-emotional and, uh, and what happened in those events is people would come out and say, well, you know, let's calm down, let's go somewhere, let's talk about it. And I honed that skill of being able to take the emotion out of my articulation of what we need to be doing within our system to make changes. Um, you said percussion. Discussion is percussion. What did you mean by that? I did. Well, uh, uh, yeah, and I think in those early days, um, um, I was probably maybe a little bit better than other people at, at, at being able to just hold enough of a, of a conversation with someone where you, were, where you weren't just bashing at people. Because um, if you're just constant, I mean, what I know, having worked with lots of people who are clinicians, is that they're working really hard, they're really passionate, they're very loving and caring. And it's a thing that's always come out on me. I've, I've been in uh, with ward managers that are in tears over trying to support somebody, over a carer that's disappointed, and having the ward managers and having other people who are in tears not knowing what to do and how to do that. They're very caring people that are desperately trying to do the right thing. And I think if you're just saying, you know, from that complaint forum, it, it's demoralising. And the workforce in the NHS can be demoralised as it is with, with a lot of the pressures that we've got under us at the moment. And um, I went on a workshop with um, Andy Bradley um, a long, quite a while ago. He tweeted me earlier on. And, and it was about compassion. The thing he learnt from him was about doing things with compassion. And the difference between dialogue and discussion is that if I just say things and then you just say things, we're not learning from each other. Dialogue is an equitable um, area for learn where each of you is learning and that's really important.
Absolutely, thank you. Sandra, I was really struck by one of the points you made in your presentation about patient involvement often being done by white, middle-aged, middle-class women. Um, And it kind of came up in the questions and the discussion at the end that we need to obviously broaden that out to a more representative population. How? I have always thought, and I don't know if anyone's doing this, you have to think about where people congregate that are those populations we're missing. So I know churches tend to be places where people at the grassroots level populate. So it's finding leaders in churches, ethnic organizations, community organizations, the networking through maybe uh, social services within the hospital or outside the hospital, schools. Um, It's just identifying where your gaps are and then doing some grassroots homework and seeing who might we start with and it might take a number of asks and referrals where people will say well let me look into it or I think you should talk to somebody and then the somebody says well I might know you know see you have to be brought into these organizations sometimes you have to almost have a, a sponsor that you've built a relationship of trust with that will bring you in because to just come in from the outside um, is maybe and sometimes a, a kind of a foreign concept for people and I, I don't think I would want to be brought in without a bit of a warm introduction where somebody knows me that's asking me to be a part of that. It's just about engaging with, with our, our third sector partners have, have um, individualised groups that, are, that we can sort of cascade down to. We have had problems and we can't, um, uh, you know, we can't um, sort of say that we've won any of those battles completely. Uh, we do have network um, um, organisation uh, network for um, LGBT and uh, BME background people. Uh, we do have mentors and we have leaders who are from different backgrounds um, of all the protected characteristics. What we do find consistently difficult is engaging with people uh, who do, do come from different backgrounds. Um, and sort of attempts have been made, but they haven't quite, and I, I have acknowledged this a couple of months ago, um, actually... Yeah, in an interview where I was asked about my own, you know, what have I done? You think, well, I haven't, not sure that I have done um, enough to get people into into our services. Um, we do have representation, but the demographic of that is lower than the national average, um, and, and we do recognise that as a problem. Um, and how we overcome that is, as you say, it's getting into that grassroots. It's There's the barriers to participate, right? I mean, some some of these folks may not have language may not have the education, may not have the access, may not have the, the skills to be able to do that. Um, and so anything that healthcare providers can do to support someone who's interested is really critical because we don't do this work alone. We won't be successful if we do this work alone. Your, your session was about moving from patient partnership to patient directorship. In your wildest dreams, in 20 years' time, what will we have achieved with this patient directorship model? Um, I, just, I just think, I mean, we're, we're sort of building a, a sort of frame that looks like it but isn't completely formed. Um, I just think that it, it would be normal business as usual, standard practice that we're all working together, um, you know, that, that we just have something that isn't a bolt-on. It's not a sort of, oh, uh, I must remind myself to ask a patient a question. Um, that it simply becomes business as usual that um, everybody's included and and it sort of um, becomes unnoticeable because it is part of the system that's integrated and it's working well.